The Future by Stefan Molyneux Chapter 26 My wife came into the room and I couldn't help myself. I sobbed loudly in relief. I was fairly convinced I was not in hell. But if I was, at least she was here with me. I also tried to crane my head a little to see where she was coming from. My first glance outside this room, but all I could see was a glimpse of a white hallway with a hint of some kind of uneven barrier to either side of the doorway outside. The long-haired man got up, nodded at me, and left the room. My wife strode in and leaned over me, brushing my hair back with a tender gesture. My eyes widened slightly, and she sat back at the chair beside my bed. She looked a little older, but, but we had met in her twenties, and, and every time I saw her after an absence, she looked older, because first impressions stick in the brain and reject time. Good morning, she said with her usual slight note of brisk sarcasm. Hello, I replied. She waved her hand. So glad you're better, darling. Now, go on, start complaining. My eyes widened slightly. <laughs> then I laughed, which came out more as a deflating croak. You know me too well, I said. Is the bed too uncomfortable for His Majesty? She smiled, leaned forward and fluffed my pillow. Are you not getting quite enough information at the rate you want it? Are you hungry, uncomfortable, disoriented, discontented in any way? My smile broadened. God, I love her. No, I love her. I'm just happy and relieved to be alive. Well, it looks like they removed more than plaque from your heart. So, what happened? She paused and her voice caught. Well, you were very sick. And they basically put you to sleep or, or induce some kind of coma, and you've been out, and they were able to fix your ticker. How long have I been out? She snorted. As you can tell from my still youthful appearance, not very long in geological terms. It was blindingly obvious to me that she had avoided my question, but of course I trusted her infinitely more than the bearded ghost of Jane, so I let it pass. Are the kids well? They are unable to be here at the moment, which I know sounds impossible, but I hope you will trust me when I say it is not their fault. You are asking for a lot of trust at the moment, I said, though not without a smile. Well, if I haven't earned it by now, you're just unwilling to pay the bill, she replied. There was a tiny pause. So, I, I, I was sick. I, I was put to sleep. I was... Cured? I'm, I'm better? You have nothing to worry about. You're fine. I considered this. Okay. I know you're not answering, so, so I won't ask again. But I, I have to imagine that I've been out for a while. If they found a cure while I was sl sleeping? She tilted her head slightly. I'm not a doctor. You'll have to ask them. They just woke me up and told me that you were better and to come in. Woke you up? 
you, you've been here in the hospital almost the whole time she murmured and something in her voice betrayed the suffering she had gone through I'm so sorry I said softly I guess I just slept through it all while you she took a deep breath well old age is our punishment for all the free and easy times we had when we were young I had a strange memory a deja vu of sorts of her saying this in some public place her eyes grew oddly alert tell me how you are feeling oh, it's quite odd my head feels like some city like Atlantis rising from the ocean the confusion is draining away and my body is it, it's very strange I, f I feel both helpless and strangely muscular at the same time I mean I, I guess someone has been exercising me otherwise I would have bed rot something fierce what else I let my mind slide down my spine towards my extremities I feel cold in the bone marrow but warmer on the skin I'm not hungry but I don't feel full it's like I've not eaten for a hundred years but been fed as hungry as a skinny horse she said an odd twist on the old cliche that I vaguely remember reading somewhere what else I paused shouldn't I be saying this to the doctors and where are the kids please don't worry about them right now she said firmly. You really need to focus on telling me how you feel, what is going on in your mind, because, well, to be frank, this is all fairly unprecedented. It's not any kind of typical cure. I held up my hand, and she stopped speaking immediately. Look, Phyllis, I could tell the doctors everything that's going on later. How are you? <laughs> What's new? <laughs> I laughed at the ridiculousness of the question. You know, fill me in, fill my ears. She took a deep breath, and her eyes seemed to shudder slightly. Did you think you were dead? I saw her redirect again, and had less patience this time. Well, it wasn't like springing up from a catnap, I said slightly grumpily. I don't feel the same. You don't feel the same. What is wrong with answering a few questions? Her cheeks flushed. Look, I'm just following the doctor's orders. They said not to excite you, and yes... I know you're going to say that means, am I cured for real? Yes, you are. But you can't just spring up from this kind of ordeal or, or situation. Do you remember when I was in my 40s and I always wanted to write a comedy about getting old? Well, now we are old, really old. And it's really not so damn funny at all. I swallowed painfully. You talked about that in, in an interview. She shrugged, probably. I felt a sudden onrush of emotion. The vulnerable words escaped my mouth before, Where am I? She looked at me sympathetically. The future, of course, where you least expect it to be. My brief moments of sanity and lucidity seemed to be evaporating. What is going on? Look, you're coming out of a deep sleep. You're bound to feel disoriented. I'm here to help. Phyllis leaned forward and kissed my forehead. What are you going to do next? Put coins on my eyes? I snapped. There's my complaining husband again. Glad to know you're feeling like your old self. There was another pause. More awkward. My sense of 
deja vu was getting stronger. A sudden thought struck me. Have I woken up before? Why do you ask that? Damn, you are, an- you are answering my questions with questions all the time. Phyllis paused. No, you haven't woken up before. As I said, you were in an induced sleep. It was impossible to wake up without outside stimulation. Another pause, another shred of half-information, more maddening distance. Look, she started, then stopped. What would make you the happiest? Oh, don't do that. Don't refuse to give me what I want and then ask what would make me happy. Answers, she stated simply. I I struggled to rise, but felt a sudden cramping in my lower back. What is it? Ow, my back. Oh, spasm. Do you want the doctor? Oh, just do something. She got up briskly, pulled back my tight covers, and felt around behind me. (gasps) And my blood froze. Oh, something was missing. I could sniff her hairspray. I could inhale the vestiges of her usual perfume, but something more elemental, something more basic and mammalian. Uh, the, the accumulated intimate scent of another body gathered in my mind for over a half century. Something elementally human was missing. And it was such a strange absence that my brain took several seconds to even begin to piece the void together. I had a sudden urge to push her away, as if she were an imitation mannequin leaning over me in the near dark. I remembered. Where the hell am I? What's the matter? She murmured into my ear. Nothing, nothing, I muttered, submitting to her groping. It's, it's past. Thanks, I'm, I'm okay. Something about me? She asked, drawing back. I shook my head. Don't lie, she said automatically, distractedly. Something about me being close? I'm very clean. They told me to. It's nothing. I muttered, the dread beginning to grow in me again. Her seemingly genuine confusion did put me at ease, at least slightly. I'm sorry. I I don't mean to make you suffer anymore. She brushed her hair back from her eyes. Oh, it's fine, she muttered, although I could see that she was still thinking about something. She asked suddenly, Do I smell different? I tried to smile. I don't know. Apparently it's been a while. No, really, they they told me your sense of smell would be affected, but would come back. I felt pain in the face of her obvious agitation. My left hand, freed from its covers, reached for her hand. She hesitated, then took it. I froze again. The hand I had held countless times over fifty-five years, it felt as strange as a bag of marbles. My words escaped. What did did? She snatched her hand back, rubbing it with her other hand. What's wrong? She demanded. Everything is going wrong. I said, nothing. I felt I needed a celestial lawyer. She turned to the door and said, It's, I'm on new medication for my arthritis. Maybe my hand feels different. They cured me. My heart? And and your arthritis? All while I was sleeping? 
I murmured, and suddenly felt that my lips and mouth had now turned to stone, silent as a statue. There was a long pause, and my wife seemed to sag in her seat. I'm sorry, she said, a tear spilling from her eye. I said nothing. Strangely enough, I did not feel mad. I did not feel dead. I did not feel haunted or tortured or buried in an insane waking world of an afterlife. I was in a sane situation of waiting. And she seemed to know that somehow. She said my name. But it had a strangely public ring to it as if she were calling out my name at a crowded party rather than in the intimacy of a hospital room. Everything she has said, I have heard before. It struck me, strangely sideways, when I remembered, as hungry as a skinny horse. That was a phrase from her autobiography about her eating disorder as a teenager when she was on the track team. She had also made the comment about getting old, not being funny, in a talk show when she was publicizing her book. Her tone was uh, public, crowded. It always used to bother me about actors. You could tell they were acting and self-consciously impressed with their own acting and how different it was when you had an actual documentary with real people. And I would imagine actors trying to play those real people and realizing that they would fail completely that they were only pretending to be human beings. The melodramatic phrase, who are you, floated through my mind. I studied her face as she looked back without blinking. It was perfect, perfectly her. The age spots were in the old spattered constellations I remembered the little scar above her left eyebrow from the bicycling accident, right there. The grey roots of her hair were just at the length she would allow before getting a dye job. Uh, A dye job in your little dye. It was her, of course. And it wasn't her. It was her public face, public voice, social self. Everything was from the outside in, Nothing was spontaneous and intimate and and generated from the moment. She was like an assembled recording of her public statements. Oh, and then a memory floated into my mind from the room before this one. The old room that seemed fantastically new at the time. Ah, and a a white-haired doctor who, who always reminded me of Dr. Welby or whoever played him putting a needle into my arm, saying, Goodbye, goodbye. I wonder what brave new world you will wake up to. I hoped that this one memory, the first one that was recent, not from my early life, would trigger a flood of other memories, but apparently that only happens in novels, because that one drop was the last gasp of a dry well. My ancient doctor said goodbye to me in a manner only fit for funeral directors. A permanent goodbye, 
an acknowledgement that we would never meet again under any circumstances in any universe. Ah, and I remembered a phrase that Nancy Reagan had used about her husband and his slow decay into dementia. The long goodbye. My doctor was giving me the long goodbye. And then, another gasp, a memory of his somber face. My bald doctor had always been jovial, positive, like Bill Cosby in a sitcom. But like Bill Cosby, he would occasionally become dead serious, which hit you like a hammer. Something about the, uh, the, 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 the difficulty of his... The difficulty of the speech, the inevitability of... Everyone gets this news, sooner or later. And a feeling of panic in a long, dead room. <gasps> what a strange phrase. And a desire to keep on living, and keep on living, and keep on... I'm far in the future, aren't I? I whispered. She paused as if listening. How much do you want to know? She asked. I paused. I will go mad if I don't know everything right now. She nodded. Where are we starting from? What do you remember? I was sick, and I wanted to live. And my doctor told me that I would wake up in a new world. I'm sure he didn't imagine I would remember it. Oh, not that it matters now. She nodded all business now. It has been a long time. And you... You are not my wife. Unless I have gone quite mad. You have not gone mad. Who are you? Do you want to know... Everything? I can't imagine how long it has been if they can... Fake you so well. Am, am I on another planet? Did I d die in this? No, no, that's totally mad. Or are, are these my? Are these all my dying thoughts that just go on and on forever and ever? I whimpered, and this seemed to rouse some sympathy within her, as far as that was possible. Are you sure you want to know everything? She asked softly. Yes. Okay. My wife reached up with both hands, brushed back her hair, then removed her face. Chapter 27 David addressed the assembled meeting. Heads of all the major DROs were gathered, most in person, a few virtual. So, a problem we had long suspected has returned to haunt us, if I can use an old colloquialism. I believe that Roman will return to the wilderness, to his tribe, and we must make preparations for that possibility. My solution will shock you, perhaps literally, but please hear me out. As you know, we have been ostracizing unrepentant criminals for the past century or so. It's incredibly rare, only a few hundred individuals in that total time, a couple every year. You all know the standards, we've all agreed. You have to be deemed mentally competent, have committed acts of evil, and refuse to make any kind of restitution, and your victims do not grant clemency. 
By all our understanding of the role of peaceful parenting, at the massive rewards of staying in the sieve, these individuals shouldn't really exist. But we accept free will, and people can always make absolutely terrible decisions, just as we are free to inflict consequences on them. Most of these people left the sieve, went into the wilderness, and were heard of no more. A few of them returned and attacked citizens who killed them in self-defense. A couple more also tried to worm their way back in, but were unable to hack our decentralized service and were quickly caught and expelled again. A few more returned half-starving and agreed to make restitutions, take talk therapy and reform. We haven't really troubled ourselves with the fates of those exiled from society. They're so rare and relatively trouble-free. Through sheer accident, my daughter, Alice, came across a tribe in the wilderness. They number about 120, and they can be roughly traced back to one of the first expulsions. A husband and wife from the town of New Eden were expelled for conspiring with a foreign government to try and reestablish a state in the sieve. Everyone in the room shuddered at the thought. David continued. As you know, we place people in disparate locations with enough survival gear and food to last them for a month. And of course, they're always welcome back if they are willing to make restitution for their crimes. We have deliberately placed them in remote locations, both from us and each other, out of concern that an alternative wilderness society would develop and present us with just this kind of problem. As it turns out, this man and woman used smoke signals to locate other outcasts, and this was the foundation of the clan we are now dealing with. A bald black man raised his arm and said, How on earth did they find each other? David shrugged. It's a little hard to tell, but based on an analysis of their mythology, apparently the first man and woman built a giant fire on top of Smudge Mountain, which drew other stragglers to them, and they paired up in some way, at least I hope so, and had kids, and here we are. An old woman said decisively, I'm not sure how we can leave them alone, and I don't believe we can integrate them. David nodded. We all know the perils of the white man's burden. It seems that civilization has to evolve. It cannot be transferred. We can also see that from the few remaining nation-states. A man with long silver hair said, Okay, this is how I see it. I assume that the adults are using force against the children, and against each other, at least on occasion as well. Again, David nodded. The man brushed his hair back and continued. So, the parents are violating the NAP by assaulting their children and each other. Free speech obviously doesn't bar verbal aggression between adults, because adults are free to choose who they listen to, but verbal abuse of children is a violation of the NAP, because it so obviously damages the developing brain. And the precious children have no escape. So, these parents, or the adults as a whole, I suppose are violating the NAP, but we can't ostracize those we have already ostracized, so what are we going to do? The old woman said, Well, any children over the age of four or five can most likely not be integrated into the sieve, and we would have to use force to separate them from their parents, which would cause more trauma to them. The kids, I mean. David said, Right, we can't just 
go and scoop up the children and bring them here. It's too traumatic and too much bad brain development for integration. But we also can't leave them where they are because they are victims of violations of the non-aggression principle. He sighed. Universality is universal. Everyone nodded. There was silence for a short time. The bald man drummed his fingers. So we can't take the kids. We can't bring the kids here. We can't bring everyone here. We can't ostracize them. But we can't allow the parents to continue abusing their children or each other. He snapped his fingers rapidly. Come on, people, we get paid to pick Satoshis. There has to be an answer. The faint humming of air circulation drifted through everyone's ears as their collective intelligence circled the problem. David said, In my experience, the longer you take to come up with a solution, the more upsetting the solution tends to be. The bald man scowled. And in my experience, describing the problem does not solve the problem. David smiled. (laughs) Very true. So, without any further ado, I will upset you with my solution, at least. Everyone lifted their heads and stared at him expectantly. He touched his watch. Okay, bring it in. There was a momentary pause... And then a small, floating baby drifted through the holographic curtain that led to the hallway. It had pink skin, blue eyes, thin, tousled blonde hair, and a broad, toothy smile. It carried a small wooden bow in its tiny left hand, and a quiver with blue arrows hung on its back. Its... His groin was covered by white cloth. The bald man whispered, Holy eye of Sauron, what on earth is that? The old woman said, I know what that is. My grandfather told me about these. She showed me some pictures when I was little. Oh, what was it called? Something medieval, David said. A cherub. The old woman nodded slowly, staring at the floating baby. The bald man said, Well, don't keep us in suspense. David gestured at the old woman. Go ahead, Agnes. Agnes took a long moment to respond, then said, This was the beginning of the sieve. When we pieced together peaceful parenting after the cataclysms, we had the problem of enforcement. How do you get parents to stop yelling at or or assaulting their children? The military technology developed during the early part of the 21st century, combined with the horrible advances during the cataclysms, was taken over by the founders of peaceful parenting, and they invented these devices called cherubs and released them in society. And we had peaceful parenting pretty much everywhere within a single generation. Another woman said, The enforcers. The old woman said, Well, they were called a lot of things. Child minders, the eyes in the sky, enforcers, shielders, snappers, sieve builders, angels. 
murmured David. The old woman nodded, lost in memory. That's my favorite. The most accurate. Another man said, It's so strange when your history books come back to life. I'm sure we all read about these so long ago. The bald man said, How do they work? How does it work, I mean? David jumped up. You son of a bitch! He snarled. The entire room was stunned into silence. The floating baby hovered placidly regarding the scene with piercing blue eyes. David smiled. You see? Free speech. No response. Because we are all adults. The bald man laughed nervously. David strode towards him, drawing back his fist. Immediately, the floating baby shot between David and the bald man. So quickly, it almost seemed to be teleporting. Imminent violation. A stern, deep, masculine voice stated flatly, utterly unnerving coming from a baby's pink mouth. David hurled his fist at the bald man's face. The man flinched, raising his arms and... Almost too fast to see, the baby drew an arrow, fitted it into the bow. There was an electric blue flash, and a bolt of lightning shot into David's chest. Gasping and trembling, David dropped to his knees, tiny bolts of electricity crawling over his skin like random blue centipedes. The bald man jumped up. Damn, David, are you, are you okay? David grimaced, pulling himself up by the edge of the obsidian table. It's not exactly painful, but it... Does mess with your muscles. Oh, hang on. <laughs> you can't do much for at least a couple of minutes. Uh, it's basically the minimum dose to prevent an attack. Uh, the angel attacks physical violence between adults and physical and verbal violence against children. These were used in the founding of the Civ. Well, basically, they were <laughs> the foundation of the Civ. But uh, within a generation, physical attacks and verbal abuse of children had become so rare that they were all decommissioned. Some were sent to museums. Most were recycled. Some put in storage. And we've got a bunch back and updated them a little bit. And this is our solution. My proposed solution. There was silence in the room. This was a lot to process. The silver-haired man said, So we just release these in this tribe around them, and they just zap everyone who abuses kids? David nodded. Okay, I'm sure this is blindingly obvious, but I don't know the answer. Won't the abusive parents just go into a hut or someplace, a cave maybe, and abuse their kids there? David grimaced. I activated this angel with my earlier phrase. Now that it is activated, it will stay with us until it is deactivated. It's solar powered, so it won't run out of juice. It defends itself, so you can't destroy it, at least not in the wilderness. It is authorized to use up to lethal force. It records everything, of course. And if you try to go into a a closet or, or a hut or a room or some private place... Well, I can show you. This thing is a work of art, and and in art, showing is always better than telling. Come with me. 
David and the bald man walked out of the conference room. A real door materialized on the hologram. David raised his voice beyond the door. The tiny pink head of the angel jerked up. Another blur of arrow shooting, a flash of light, red this time, and the angel flickered through a perfectly cut circle in the door. David poked his head through the mildly smoking hole. It can cut through just about anything, even drill through rock if need be. He opened the door and came back in, the bald man close behind, followed by the eternally smiling angel. The bald man said, I'm not even going to pretend to be sorry to be that guy, but what if a truly sadistic parent finds some way to escape this driller? It was called a SNAP or snapper because it snapped people with electricity and because it enforces the NAP. I like the suggestion of Agnes. Let's call it an angel. It was made in this shape to be more pleasing to children so they wouldn't be as scared. Okay, the angel... What if the parent evades it somehow? David nodded. David nodded. Oh, we know how tenacious parents are in continuing abuse. There's a reason it went on for 150,000 years, basically the entire history of our species. And so the angel can also analyze cortisol, scan for salt patterns on the cheeks, and breathing rates, you name it. If a parent somehow abuses a child outside the angel's watchful eye, the angel then gently questions the child, looking for stress patterns and the avoidance of eye contact. It also analyzes the cortisol levels of the parent, as well as endorphins, which will get released if the parent enjoyed the abuse. The old woman's eyes were sad. If he or she is a sadist, David nodded right. If all the evidence points to very recent abuse. It provides a double dose of electricity to the parent, which really does hurt, trust me. The old woman said, I can't remember. Does it promote good behavior at all? David shook his head. No, it's just enforcement. All stick, no carrot. Do you know why that decision was made? David stared at the friendly, floating, implacable Cherub. Oh, yeah, I've studied this thing deeply. I mean, you know, one of the central weird delusions in history was the idea that if the government doesn't do something, that thing won't get done. If the government doesn't provide education, no one will be educated. If the government doesn't build the roads, no roads will be built. It was a mad delusion, you all know. It's like saying that if you take a giant rock from the middle of a stream, the water will still continue to flow around the hole. David's eyes moved from person to person. It turned out that when parents were prevented from abusing their children, they spontaneously, mind you, just kind of invented peaceful parenting on their own. Like... When we eliminated the power of the rulers, DROs emerged spontaneously. When violence is banned, spontaneous self-organization emerges naturally, inevitably, and very quickly. The end of government education was about 10 days worth of chaos. A few classes held in garages, the quick purchasing of government schools, which were 
then quite quickly abandoned, and the current system of parent-shadowing experience education emerged within a month or two and has stayed pretty much the same ever since. The bald man said, so we just release these in this tribe? And, and then what? David smiled. <laughs> Come on, we are not savages. We already have a number of peaceful parenting advocates who are perfectly willing to deploy to the clan if they are allowed, which I kind of doubt. But no, we will provide information and training and resources, anything they want, at the same time as we let the angels protect the children. The old woman said, it's so techy. Why not just use people? Go on. Well, I can see why in the past they needed robots, because billions of children were being abused all around the world, so it was impossible to... There weren't enough people, and most of the people wanted to abuse the kids. It was a sadistic age, as they all were. David said, well, it wasn't billions of people at all by the end of the cataclysms. Remember, we started out with only a few million best guess. Those who had seen the disasters coming, they were the ones who worked their hardest to break the cycle of history and give us the sieve. Right, right, but why not use people experts with this tribe? It seems a little freaky to have these babies hovering around zapping people who raised their hands against their children. I'm concerned about psychotic breaks, or... or she furrowed her brow, taking a deep breath. Well, sadism is next door to masochism, and cruel parents might learn to love being zapped, or they might be willing to escalate the angels even to lethal force in order to... I mean, we are talking about some seriously primitive personalities here. David nodded slowly. That is certainly a, uh, not a risk exactly, but a possible consequence. It is incredibly destabilizing for abusers to stop abusing. It brings back their own childhood to their conscience, if they still have one. And it can cause a total collapse in the personality. And yes, some people might choose to really harm themselves by provoking the angels, which would certainly be very traumatic for the children. But universality is universality. That's why we've never released these in the statist societies. They would just respond with terrorism, escalation. Plus, they could find ways to disable them. David's voice grew grim. Look, we all know, around this table, across the sieve, that we cannot base morality on consequences. Consequences are a form of mysticism because you can invent any outcome for any proposed action. All pragmatism does is paralyze morality. I could say, well, the parents won't stop abusing, so the angels will end up seriously harming or killing them, which is even more traumatic for the children, so we should just let things be. David spread his hands in a gesture of benevolent helplessness. Consequences be damned. We enforce the non-aggression principle regardless of consequences. He paused for a moment. We won't use people because abusers are incredibly sensitive to loss of status and it's hard to feel as humiliated by a mere machine. Being attacked by a human being would cause immediate escalation. 
the genius of the angels is that it's harder to take being punished personally. If we had people there, the children would be in far more danger, as with the parents. The bald man said, okay, I get the physical abuse thing. That's just reading body language and sniffing for cortisol. But the verbal abuse thing, that seems, that's impossible to understand for me. Parents still lecture their children, which some kids seem to hate more than spanking, and correct their children and guide their children. How on earth is a robot supposed to figure out the line between verbal correction and verbal abuse? David nodded. I hear what you're saying, but would you have any trouble distinguishing between the two? The bald man paused. I guess it's like most things. There's some stuff in the fuzzy middle that's hard to unpack, but most of the more extreme positions are pretty obvious. The angel is designed to provide a warning if it detects vocal stress, cortisol, rising volume, and muscle rigidity, all signs of hostility. It comes pre-programmed with many phrases of verbal abuse, the usual calling names, implying incompetence, universalizing the stakes, moral hypocrisy, insulting personality, all that stuff. If it really can't decide, it simply sends the recording to us and provides a warning, and we can decide after a manual review. It's not perfect, of course, but it's a massive improvement. Look, we all know that I can't impose this solution unilaterally, so I'm open to any and all other suggestions. But this is the basic fact. We can't leave them there. And we can't bring them here. The debate ranged back and forth for most of the afternoon. Some voices were even raised, causing the floating angel to turn rapidly. But free speech ruled, and the deployment of the angels won the day. Chapter 28 David knocked on the door of Roman's hotel room. He had not seen the older man for several days. The hotel room was consciously spectacular. A whole wall of real windows with a dual view of the ocean above and a teeming coral reef below. Zero gravity tickle showers, in-room barbecues, isolation massage chambers, the whole works. But after returning from Atlantis... Roman had closed the curtains, used nothing, eaten nothing, said nothing. David wanted to give him his space, but had to talk to him now, and finally got a robot made to open the door. The room was dark, silent, and smelled vaguely of a rotting fall forest. David let his eyes adjust to the gloom rather than turn on a light. Roman sat hunched over the edge of a voluminous couch. Are you sure you don't need anything? It asked gently. Do you feel unwell? The old warrior said nothing, his head in his hands. Roman? asked David. He made a gesture to silence the couch. Nothing. I'm going to assume that 
our tour is done. David walked closer to Raman. In the dark, he noticed that the couch had been slashed and stabbed. There was still a steak knife sticking out from a torn cushion. Of course, he didn't know how to turn it off, so violence. You went silent the last time we talked. Don't you want to know any more about your history? Roman looked up, his face like a smudge of charcoal in the dark. David said, As my mother used to say, let's shed a little light on the subject. He gestured again, and the curtains opened slightly. He sat in an armchair opposite Roman, gesturing to ensure that it did not ask him if he wanted a snack. David said, We have traced your history. Your ancestors were ejected from the sieve for just about the gravest crime. They were starting a DRO with the intent of re-establishing a state. Roman nodded slowly. His eyes were hooded, sad, defensive. Was their case fairly proved? He asked with dull belligerence. David nodded. Well, of course I'm going to say yes, but I don't expect you to believe me. I will tell you the mechanism by which they were found out, and you can tell me if it makes sense to you. They started a DRO, this man and woman, early on, shortly after the end of the cataclysms. There were a number of groups struggling to reinstate the state, so to speak, but society was too chaotic and fragmented for any group to gain ascendancy. David shrugged. Ireland, millennia ago, lasted 800 years without any government. It's happened before. People still need collective security, charity, dispute resolution, roads, at least then. And the longer the recreation of the state was kept at bay, the more voluntary organizations stepped in to fill the void. There was a general horror of the violence that had massively traumatized the entire population because nobody escaped the cataclysms, as as I'm sure you know. We found some old-world writings about peaceful parenting, which we were able to spread, and the right ideas began to take root. David's voice was gentle. Roman stared through him. No taxation. No indoctrination of the young. A horror of violence. The non-aggression principle finally applied to children. Voluntary and, and peaceful solutions to collective social problems. And the rise of a generation that had no interest in crime no susceptibility to addiction, no obesity, no hypersexuality, good and reasonable health habits, raised by parents who were held personally liable for the misdeeds of their children. This all meant that the usual bogeymen held up by the state to justify its existence just weren't there at the same time that vastly superior replacements for Traditional state functions were everywhere. David spread his hands. When you think about the general span of human history, it was almost overnight. But the same thing was true of slavery. It went on for almost all of human history and was ended pretty quickly. And once it was over, no one argued for its return. Peaceful parenting, 
a stateless society. They all turned out to be the greatest advancement in human history. David let his calm voice work to soothe Roman's obvious mental and emotional collapse. David smiled. Your name keeps reminding me. Did you know that the ancient Romans knew all about the steam engine and other necessities of the 19th century industrial revolution? Roman shrugged. But they didn't have any interest in replacing human labor with machinery because they owned slaves. Their entire economy was built on their backs. Labor-saving devices reduced the value of physical labor, so why would you want to invest in machinery that destroyed the value of your slaves? David sighed. (sighs) No, the old world could not come about while there was still slavery. And you can go back and read all of these hysterical idiots when the end of slavery was proposed. They were all saying the same thing, like a mantra of morons. Oh, but slaves pick the cotton and the food. If we don't have slaves, we will end up naked and starving. (laughs) David chuckled softly. An enormous manta ray swam the bright, narrow pillar of ocean between the curtains. They had the strangest fantasy. They believed that because an unjust situation produced something, There was no way a just situation could produce something better. (laughs) Madness. Come on. If a society ran on arranged marriages enforced by the state and someone proposed a system of voluntary courtship, these exact same morons would scream out that no one would get married unless they were forced and there would be no families or relationships or children and we would all die out within a generation. (laughs) David laughed, sadly, brushing back his sandy hair. Ah, to the truly indoctrinated, the truth is always stranger than their wildest fantasies. This whole journey is like time travel for you. (laughs) Imagine if I were sent back in time to the slavery debates... And I were to say to the pro-slavery advocates, you don't have to worry about cotton and, and fruits and vegetables being picked in the future because within a few short decades, giant robots, half the width of a field, will use huge metal arms to pick the wheat and barley, a giant field, in just an hour. And these giant robots will be powered by crushed dinosaur juice from hundreds of millions of years ago. And then, not too long after that, smaller robots with metal fingers as delicate as the legs of a spider will pick the fruits and vegetables and work all day and all night, powered by the light of the sun. (sighs) David shook his head. (laughs) They would call me insane. Because people truly believe that they can accurately predict the liberated future of a free mankind. But the future cannot be known because of free will, which means that we can only use principles to navigate where we are going. Universal principles. Because those in charge, those with power, will always frighten us with dire consequences in order to 
bypass our rational faculties. Two things kill thinking in a man, arousal and fear. Filling the minds of the masses with horror stories about the sins of disobedience using hell in the past, pandemics, racism, war and starvation before the cataclysms, requires that you studiously avoid principles and focus on imaginary consequences. It's all about as sophisticated as a voodoo curse, if you've heard of them. Light was coming into the room. Lionfish and lazy seahorses gathered outside the invisible glass. And if you try to run an advanced society on the basis of primitive superstition, the greatest being that you can predict the future of freedom, then you end up where the world always did end up. Destroying freedoms by predicting a dire future creates it, the ultimate self-fulfilling prophecy. And it is truly horrible how many people had to suffer and die for us to learn that lesson. But we are a strange species. We would usually rather die than be proven wrong. And sadly, nature grants our wish on a regular basis. Or at least she used to. David's voice had grown distant. Roman stood up, his knees creaking. My ancestors, he said grimly. David blinked. Yes, sorry. <laughs> it's a story I tell myself or others too often, and it's a tangent at the moment. All right. Your ancestors, they started a DRO, a defense DRO, specific to researching and creating or buying weaponry to protect the region from invasion. A bunch of them started up, but they weren't very necessary because no external state was really interested in invading our region. Roman grunted, I don't believe you. Why not? The older man glowed. Since this is to be our last conversation, no state would ever want a free region nearby, especially if that free region was successful because its best and brightest would fleet to freedom, and the success of the free region would undermine the arguments for the state. David blinked in surprise. That, that is true. The flood of people fleeing statism was almost beyond belief. Oh, and we were hated by the politicians and rulers, but uh, let me explain it this way. Let's say that there are two regions, one we call farm and one we call wilderness. The farm is fully functional. It has crops and livestock and fences and machinery and makes a lot of money. While the wilderness is just that, an untamed area with no domestication at all. If you want to make money and you have no ethics, which region do you take over? Roman's dull eyes narrowed, sensing a trap. The farm. Why? Who cares? It's already finished. You can start making money right away. Right. And when governments take over another country, what are they really taking over? They are taking over the tax collection system. A country 
is a farm. A free region is a wilderness. If you take over the free region, what do you get? There's no government, no state courts, no treasury, no bullion, no tax collection, no government schools you can take over and use to indoctrinate the population. There's no central registry of the population. No accounting for location, income, assets, ownership of weapons, no census, nothing. What are you taking over? A well-armed wilderness with no way to profit from the population. No way to seize assets because cryptocurrency cannot be seized. A country presents a single throat for you to squeeze. A free region is scattered, unmanaged, unknowable. And the population has not been trained into obedience. Roman sat heavily, shaking his head. Yeah, but power is for power. It's not just about making money. If you have this free wilderness, states will destroy it because it threatens their power. David laughed, delighted that Roman seemed to be coming back to life. Quite right. I, I can see why your ancestors were so good at... We were shielded from invasion for immediate material gain, but our threat to the power of neighboring states was significant. You're right. Because of peaceful parenting, we didn't need much policing at all internally, but there were existential threats from neighboring states, so defense DROs were created. Roman scout. I can see about a thousand problems with those. Go on. Do we have to? No, said David. But I've asked for nothing, and I know you're never coming back. I would like your answer. Roman sat in silence for a long moment. The ripples of light behind him, reflected from the water, gave the large room the appearance of an underwater cave. Well, he said finally, I would imagine that if you wanted power, you would just promise to protect the citizens of the free region, take their, what, Bitcoin, and just use it to fund your own army and take over the region. People desperate for protection always give up their liberties. True. Central lesson of the past. It's why history was just a series of jump scares into a volcano run by the rulers. So, what is the solution? Roman shrugged. There is no solution. It's a power vacuum. Get rid of the state, another rises to take its place. I die, my son rises. David, between his teeth. I know it's a lot to ask from a wild man from the wilderness, but you have to think like an entrepreneur if you want to solve these problems. I'm not a damn entrepreneur. You could take me hunting. What? David grinned. You're in my area of expertise. I'll come to yours. You can take me hunting. Teach me what you know and watch me get everything wrong. You're saying I'm getting everything wrong? David laughed. <laughs> no, of course not. You're doing incredibly well. But instead of being a skeptic, you need to be a salesman. I really don't. David sighed. Yes, now you are all about the precision. It's true, you don't, but you won't understand the world that rejected you if you refuse. Try this. Instead of being someone lobbing problems at a proposed solution, be someone who is trying to sell your solution to me. What the hell do you mean? Well, when people first came up with 
defense DROs, everyone was skeptical and fearful and wanted to just defend themselves. So the leaders of these defense DROs, when they were just a proposal, had to sell their ideas to the general population who were scared of exactly what you were talking about, that the defense DROs would take their money and buy some robot army and then take over. But someone needs to look around the world to figure out what dangers are brewing and negotiate with or, or threaten hostile foreign actors. Most people can defend their own homes. It takes a real expert to defend an entire region, preemptively if possible. So we, this region, when it was smaller, needed people to scan and act against hostile actors. But they were terrified of those people taking their money, then taking them over. So, imagine you are your ancestor and you're trying to sell people on the idea of a defense DRO. One of many, because it is a violation of the non-aggression principle to establish a coercive monopoly. How would you sell them? How would you deal with their fears that you would just take their money and create a new state to rule over them? Roman scowled again. Is this necessary? David shrugged. Depends how you define the word. It is your history, the history of your tribe, the decisions of your ancestors that define how you live now. Roman's eyes darkened. So I'm supposed to sell you on my ability to defend you without threatening you? David nodded. Roman took a deep breath. Well, I would have to give you an account of everything I was doing, all my weapons and research or whatever. And that would have to be verified by someone else, someone independent, maybe a competitor or all my competitors. And, and I would have to put some money, a lot of money, someplace safe. And I would have to give it up if I was proven to be dishonest about the weapons I had or what I was developing. David raised his hands as if to clap them together. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm not an entrepreneur. Yes, all that happened. And each defense DRO was competing on price, the price of defending the region. So any DRO that bought more weapons, and, and you would need a lot to take over a freely armed region, would have to have some way to fund, to, to pay for that additional weaponry. They would have to borrow or, or raise their prices, which means their customers would have to pay more either way. Also, a bank would have to agree to secretly loan money to a defense DRO, knowing that this defense DRO would likely try to create a new state, which would then have coercive power over the bank. Never happened. David laced his fingers together. Everything in the free market is intertwined. Every loan to a defense DRO would need to be scrutinized. And we use Bitcoin, of course, so the ledger is public. The loan can't be hidden. And each defense DRO is watching the others like a hawk, scanning for any accumulation of hidden weaponry. And if they find any, they advertise it broadly, which would scare the hell out of that rogue DRO's customers, who would immediately stop their payments, causing the dangerous DRO to collapse. And any institution that supported the rogue DRO would also lose customers 
And other DROs, the ones dealing with civil disputes like contracts, would stop enforcing any contracts for any rogue institutions. Also, the heads of the rogue DRO would be sued into oblivion for what is called fiduciary misconduct or threatening the value of the entity through immoral actions. And those leaders would lose everything, their houses, their savings, you name it. Remember, there is no corporate shield for institutional leaders. The old question, who watches the watchers? The only real answer. Everyone, through market choice. David shook his head. <laughs> no, there's no incentive to try to recreate the state. And every incentive to provide regional defense as cheaply and effectively as humanly possible. Roman stood up. Something in the abstract conversation was exhausting him. But this is what happened, you say. David nodded. This is what happened. Your ancestors created a defense DRO and ended up with excessive weaponry. They were funded by foreign governments to institute a state in the free region and crush our liberties. There was a pause. Roman asked, uh, Were they caught? Their contracts with their customers are enforced a monthly audit. Everything was accounted for, all the weapons and research. But there was a mismatch between the energy consumption and the resources produced. A competitor, Defense DRO, was running a heat scan from orbit and compared the results to previous months. David smiled sadly. Those were my ancestors. They published the significantly increased heat sink and warned the customers of your ancestors, DRO, of the danger. They demanded a more detailed audit which revealed an underground bunker half full of robot drones. That was a massive uproar, as you can imagine. Everyone's worst fears coming true, and their customers cancelled their contracts, and sanctuary and money was offered to any foreign leader or dignitary willing to expose the plot. And a few came forward with documents confirming it. Your ancestors were tried, but the evidence was beyond overwhelming. There was another long pause. Roman finally said, were, was there an offer for them to stay at all? Well, it was a big debate at the time. The Civ didn't have a mechanism for ostracism or expulsion without the possibility of restitution because there'd never been crimes of this magnitude before. It's actually fascinating reading going over the historical archives. The general consensus was that restitution was impossible given the magnitude of the treachery treason, really. But some people argued that it was essential that your ancestors be given the choice to stay or to leave. Otherwise, it would be easier for them to play the victim. The restitution proposed was pretty significant. Use all property, all contracts, and work as manual laborers for a competitor's DRO for 20 years. Roman pursed his lips. I thought your lot didn't do manual labor. Oh, yeah, that's true. They would have worked alongside robots. But they could have stayed 
and their new contracts would have been enforced, and they would have participated in the economy. The sun was setting over the ocean outside the curtains. Waving red light danced over David's face. But I chose to rule in hell rather than serve in heaven, murmured Roman. David nodded slowly. They did. There was a long silence. David said, But in their way, they did an enormous service to the serf. Sometimes the best thing some people can do is serve as a warning to others. No one ever tried that again. What happened to the foreign rulers? Oh, they got sick and died, David said grimly. Roman nodded. David stood up and gestured for the curtains to open wide. Sunlight flooded into the room, making both men flinch. David rubbed his eyes, then turned to Roman. And then your ancestors passed from the knowledge of the Sif and went into the wilderness. They were not sterilized? No, that would be a violation of the non-aggression principle. So they bred. That wasn't considered? It was. But again, we don't make moral decisions based on consequences, because that is an imagined fantasy. They chose to do wrong. They chose to reject restitution. They chose to leave. What happened after that? Roman took a step forward. By now, it matters to you, David sighed. It's not personal, Roman. It's not what matters to me. It's what matters to morality, to to universality, because that is the foundation of everything that we have achieved. And if we break that, if we even crack that, then everything might fall apart. Roman snorted bitterly. Well, that's an appeal to consequences, if ever I heard one. David considered this with surprise. No, you're right. You're right. Let me ask you this. If you saw a man about to sleepwalk off a cliff and and fall to his death, would you stop him? Yeah, unless he was an enemy. You are not our enemy, said David with great seriousness. You think I am sleepwalking? David paused. It's not important what I think about your motives or, or, or what goes on in your mind, because that's not objective. It can't be proven. I do know that you are abusing your children. I know you call that instruction and culture and tradition, but none of that matters. You strike your children. We do, said Roman unapologetically. You are verbally harsh with your children. You you call them names and punish them. They punish themselves, just as you said. What? Roman took another step forward. You said about my ancestors that they chose to do wrong and avoid restitution, and so they chose to leave. You were... Enforcing morality, not just punishing individuals, right? Yes, it's the same with us. We have rules for our children, and those rules are not arbitrary, and they're not to be enforced in anger, and they are essential to our survival. Just as my ancestors chose to leave, our children choose punishment by disobeying the rules. David thought for a moment. But they are 
children. Your ancestors made their choices when they were adults. But you say, oh, and you have endlessly repeated, that adult choices are conditioned by childhood experiences. Abuse, you call it. A boy who was abused, even by my standards, who then becomes a criminal is less responsible for his criminality because he was abused, right? That is true, said David softly. And that is why we focus so hard on the scans and, and figuring out which children are being abused and stopping it at the source. And were there scans when my ancestors did what they did? There were, but not nearly as accurate. So, if criminality as an adult is based on abuse as a child, what happened to my ancestors when they were children that turned them into such criminals? David considered this for a long moment. Roman continued, I saw you, with great empathy and tenderness, talking to Christina, the mother of those two boys. It was violent, but had brain damage from her tumour. And you did not condemn her. You did not reject her. You did not evict her from your society. She was physically damaged in her mind. Can you tell me with absolute certainty that my ancestors were not also physically damaged in their minds? David whispered, I cannot. And this is why you cannot consider me an enemy, said Roman softly, stepping forward again. Because your ancestors acted with tribal fear and hatred against my ancestors, banishing them against all of this new knowledge about child abuse and criminality. You just waved your magic wand called free will and kicked them out. You were terrified that your new society might not work, that it might be taken over by another state. So you needed someone on the cross, someone on Calvary, a scapegoat, an example to scare everyone else. And it worked. You just told me. No one ever tried that again. They were interviewed about their past, cried David, his cheeks red. And I saw you interview Christina about her past. She was not accurate because her brain was damaged. Memory is a physical thing, right? If my ancestors were damaged, they might not remember what happened. What do you think I've been doing sitting in this damn room since you told me? He tapped his own swarthy forehead violently, thinking! David opened his mouth, then closed it again. More softly, Roman asked, have you ever interviewed an evil person? Define. Roman shrugged. Well, someone with good scans as a child, no brain damage, no trauma, no diseases, who just did evil, violated your non-aggression principle. Tough question, murmured David. Tell me, said Roman, in a slightly mocking tone, imitating David. David took a step backwards. Well, if I have never interviewed an evil person, then evil is always brain damage. And therefore, not evil, but just a shadow cast by sickness. But if I have 
interviewed an evil person, then you will say that my use of free will is just a kind of superstition, a, a phrase that I paint on behaviors that I cannot understand. Roman smiled with grim satisfaction. That's right. David looked back and forth, as if scanning his memory externally. There was always an explanation, he said finally. Roman nodded. And was this explanation always provable through some kind of scan or procedure? David paused for a long time. Oh, I think I felt a pressure to, to, to come up with an explanation. But, but at the same time, I, I, I guess I felt that if everything could be explained, if we were all just dominoes falling slabs from what came before, that there really wasn't any such thing as morality. Roman grunted and said, uh, civilization is overcomplication. David shivered. What do you mean? I, I feel it, but I, I don't get it. Roman shrugged again. We say to our children, do what I tell you or I'll punish you. And my punishment will be much less than nature's punishment. So it comes from a place of protection, of love. The purpose is survival. The morality is integrity to that survival. But you people are so far from questions of survival that you've just invented morality as a justification for your decisions to punish. No, that's not it at all. It works. It, it really does work. You can see it all around you. We don't have any crime. We, we are safe and secure. We are content. We are happy. Utopia has been achieved. And it is not the nightmare of, of boredom and, and restlessness that everyone believed it would be in the past when they wrote fantastic stories about the future. Because those writers were just serving power by telling people that happiness was actually misery, so they should stay enslaved. But, but what? snapped David. Roman paused, glancing at the sky, the sea, the coral, and bright creatures swaying in the current, the tide. But, yeah, it's impressive what you've achieved. I'm not going to argue that. But you've just trained people to be good, like dogs. By making everyone's childhood a paradise, you've taken away the biological, material fight between the past and the present. Maybe that's for the best. What do I know? I'm just some old warrior from the woods. Roman was very close to David's face. He gestured towards all they had seen all the wondrous distractions of the sieve, of a sky, land, and sea. But I can tell you this. No one here is good anymore. They might be perfect. They might be happy. They might be wonderful. But they are not good because they have no temptation to be evil. Because they're raised so peacefully. And maybe that is heaven. Maybe that is paradise. But I prefer the tension. I prefer the temptation. I prefer the risk of evil. And if we have to discipline our children in order to maintain that essential humanity, 
He shrugged eloquently. Well, give your opponents their best arguments, murmured David. What? Nothing, nothing. David shook his head as if clearing water from his ears. He took a deep breath. Okay, but tell me, would a more skilled hunter hunt by hand without bows or spears or any traps or weapons? Roman snorted. I'd be a crappy hunter, but it would take more skill to catch a deer with your bare hands. Idiot skill. Can you catch a deer with your bare hands? Roman scowled and shook his head. So what? So, said David's deadly. You are willing to hunt with less skill in order to hunt better or more efficiently. It would take more skill to catch a deer with your bare hands, but you're hungry, so you shoot the deer with an arrow. So, demanded Roman. David paused, collecting his thoughts. So, you reduce your free will, your choices, in order to be more efficient, in order to be better, You could still choose to throw your bow and arrow aside and try and tackle the deer, but you never would because it wouldn't work. And if you proposed that to your hunting party, they would laugh at you, even though you might be able to achieve it with everyone working together. So, you have shrunk your choices in order to improve the outcome. In other words, skill doesn't mean maximum ability, but rather best outcome. A skilled hunter brings home the most meat. He doesn't have the very best possible ability because the ability only matters in getting the meat. Your point? So, we have removed or or, or reduced some choices in order to have the best possible outcome. Just like you remove some choices, tackling deer, in order to get the best possible outcome, which is getting meat. A one-armed bowman would need more skill than a two-armed bowman, but you don't cut off one arm because more skill is always better skill, right? Roman refused to answer. More deepening sunlight filled the room. The shadows of fish swam against the far wall. David continued. So by raising children peacefully, they end up reasonable, peaceful, productive, happy, The skill is in the happiness, not in the overcoming of temptation. Just as for you, the skill is in getting the meat, not overcoming artificial obstacles like cutting off an arm or trying to catch deer by hand. You use your technology to focus your skills on the goals, and so do we. Our technology is called peaceful parenting, and the goal is happiness. The methodology is virtue. But it's not virtue if you don't choose it, shouted Roman. Virtue is not the choice, but the method. Just as a hunter's skill is not his goal, but actually getting the meat. The ability serves the purpose. The purpose is the point. We are just removing the obstacles to consistent virtue. Reason leads to virtue, leads to happiness. And child abuse undermines our capacity for reason which makes virtue incredibly challenging and happiness endlessly elusive. We don't cripple our children in the pursuit of happiness, just as you don't cripple your hunters in the pursuit of meat. Nobody 
wakes up and really wants to be virtuous, virtue is the means to the end, which is happiness. Roman leaned forward and snarled, that's just a pathetic love of pleasure, wanting to be happy all the time. A lazy, drug-addicted bunch of crap. We are men, goddammit. We are born to strive, to struggle, to overcome obstacles. He lifted up his arm and flexed his bicep. Our souls, ourselves, are like muscles. They only strengthen with resistance. And you've taken away all resistance and become flaccid and loose and lazy. David exhaled. You get angry when I strike a nerve. Roman paced back and forth. Don't try to control my anger by categorizing it. That's girlish, David said. You go back tomorrow. Roman glared at David. And if I want a stay, David shook his head. You can't. Like my ancestors. Yet I have committed no crime. You have, said David flatly. You have abused your children. They are my children, snarled Roman. No, they are not. They belong to the world, to morality, and to themselves, which you cannot violate. Roman almost smoked. Yet you are sending me out into exile. You will not gather my clan in nets and put us in a zoo here. Our children will remain ours. David put his hand squarely on his hips. No. Saying that your children are exempt from morality is like saying that your children are exempt from gravity. Morality is objective, universal. It is the laws of interaction between objects, like the laws of physics, but with people. And how do you intend to enforce these laws if you turn me out? The laws of physics don't require your intervention. David stared at Roman, then murmured, Strike me. Roman paused. It's not, it's not a violation of your non-aggression principle if you ask me, right? David shook his head. Roman curled his fist, raised it, and then a floating pink blonde baby carved a smoking hole through the white wall and shot a bright blue arrow into his spine. 